welcome to the Faces of Gentrification podcast. My name is Kelsey Hawkins-Johnson from Public Allies, Cincinnati. In this episode, you'll be hearing an interview between Luke Herman with Carla Schiffels, an associate professor in the School of Planning at the University of Cincinnati. They will explore the topic of sustainable development and how it relates to gentrification on a global and local scale. Enjoy! So you carried out some research in Southwest Asia. Um, can you share uh, with us a glimpse of some of the issues you encountered with the communities you have studied and their interactions with the city around development? Um, was negative, positive? Yeah, my, my work was predominantly in Indonesia. In fact, that was my dissertation way back. Uh, and I was looking at what they call kampungs. I don't like to use the word slum and they don't use it there because these are actually vibrant communities. What makes them different is that they have been unplanned. They organically developed by people who weren't inserted into the economy so they couldn't inherit a house or buy a house. They A lot of them moved in from rural areas or smaller towns to find work. And then these communities evolve. And some of them are very extremely like, uh, you know, squatter settlements with buildings made from pieces of metal and paper and whatever people could find. But a lot of them are not. In fact, most of them are not. Most of them are um, these communities um, build um, houses, homes, um, kind of lay out by default you know, roads, they, you know, these people have lived in either towns or villages before, so they know what, you know, how to set up places to live. The trouble is, and I think it still is to some degree today, because my work was like 30 years ago, um, is that because they're illegal or not part of the plan, they don't receive services and infrastructure from the formal government. So at the time I was there, um, it was very, they were not hooked up to the city water system or sanitation, or they, they could get garbage collection if they moved the garbage out of the area where they were to a main road. Um, and, and so conditions where it became sort of dire. You have to understand in Jakarta, it's very low lying, it's tropical climate, it rains a lot. Um, there's a lot of, there's 13 rivers that go through the city and a lot of these settlements were near the river. So flooding was a major problem. Um, so let's, let's move forward 30 years. In fact, I've just revisited, I didn't go there, but I've been following what's going on. Um, a, a lot of um, realization of issues of climate change and how it's affecting the city as a whole, but especially these communities. Um, and so they've started some programs to um, specifically um, with flooding to deal with flooding and try to reduce flooding and try to give um, resources um, to improve construction and move things away from the edges of the creek, the rivers, um, to reduce the, the loss from the flooding that is very prominent there. Um, the other thing that would be different in like Indonesia than someplace like here is that for many years now, 50 years, 60 years, 
um, the large multilateral development agencies like the World Bank or the United Nations does yep. some. Um, and also the bilateral like USAID and every country has one of these um, have been giving a lot of money and programmatic help to try to improve these conditions. In fact, Indonesia is famous for a program that was uh, with the World Bank and other groups called the Kampung Improvement Program, KIP, K-I-P, which was and still is very interesting because most slum improvement programs are, let's tear everything down and build something better. This program was about, no, we're not gonna move people. We're not gonna tear it down. We're gonna provide resources for them through self-help to improve the conditions. And so a lot of what they were given were materials to build roads and pathways, to um, technical assistance and how to create ditches and water runoff systems, um, wells, building wells and public toilet areas to improve sanitation, um, composting, a variety of things like that. And a lot of these communities did improve that way through their own self-help, a lot of nonprofits, both local nonprofits and international nonprofits going in to help with these things as well. Um, it takes money, it takes the physical resources, it takes know-how, and then it takes people power. Yeah. Was it so it was pretty positive for the people living there? For the most part, yes. Now, some of these communities, um, if they were in the quote unquote wrong place, a place where the city wanted to develop, you know, near a new highway or near something they thought was important, then they would get evicted and, mm -hmm. and the place would be raised. Got it. Um, it reminds me of the West End. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so often developers hide the fact that they're gentrifying through using the words like community right, uh, revitalization. Um, what are your thoughts around that language of development? Yeah. You know, gentrification is a loaded word, um, and we can all debate what does it <laughs> yeah. mean and who knows what we're doing For or sure. not. Um, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, it's very easy to pit developers against activists or people who want to help the poor. I don't think it's so clear cut. I think what you have to step back and say, developers, private sector is driven by doing something that will create a profit. Their goal is not the public good. Their goal is not necessarily to help people and make places better for people, but better for income generation. And so I, I don't like to um, villainize <laughs> developers because they're playing the game the way that's beneficial. So what, but what that says to me is you have to step back and say, you can't just tell developers don't do that anymore. Right. You have to change the policy system and the incentives and disincentives at some policy level that make it better to play the game a different way. Right. That, for sure. <laughs> to more something yeah. more equitable, for sure. Yeah. That so sense. that's one thing. Um, and, and I think um, when, when you start thinking about, you know, what is what's causing gentrification just in teaching in the school planning? You know, the, the students now, of course, they love over the Rhine, cool neighborhood. That's where they all go 
for themselves, but also in planning, we use it a lot. We say, go down there and see what happened and the changes. Um, and it's very easy if you're not thinking about the marginalized populations to go, of course, this is fantastic. This is cool. This is great. There's some jobs created, but for who? That's not always thought about. Um, but more people can make money, but does it, it doesn't necessarily open doors for people who are already marginalized to make more money or have a better quality of life. Um, and that's the problem. And that's, it's not simple to answer. It's, it's the question we all have to keep working on. Um, I have not found in, in reality many solutions that do it well. Yeah. I've seen planners and activists and even developers try to go in with objectives to have a non-gentrified outcome. And it still doesn't happen very easily or very yeah. well. Sounds su it's super hard for sure. Yeah. Sounds like um, so. Let's like switch a little more to sustainable development um, in the context of like green buildings and green spaces. Um, although they're well-meaning and help uh, reduce the carbon footprint, do you think they also do more harm than good? Again, I think it's how <laughs> yeah. you how the people who are in all of this envision the system. Yes, when we go in, I think now, and there's growing literature proving this, that a lot of the um, both developer-generated and even city-generated sustainability programs to create more green space, more trees, uh, green buildings, all these things, have leaded to gentrification because they increase the property values, they make a place more attractive for people who have money and resources, and that shift occurs. Mm -hmm. Um, so again, we need a, a, a policy system that, and what we've tried to do is like require so much affordability, require so much this and that, whatever, when we intervene in places. Right. Um, I think um, if you look at the, what is sustainability and how can we improve um, our human relation with the environment, climate change, and these sorts of things. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be this kind of developer intervention to do green buildings that yes, today cost more, hopefully in the future they will cost less. Um, when, let me flip back to when I was working um, internationally in Asia and so forth. A lot of the development mantra for the external agencies giving money for development that me and many other people had was we need to find appropriate technologies and affordable technologies and not assume we can in the case of Indonesia go in and put a fancy American sewer system in a place that doesn't have enough money to maintain it and, and on and on and on that there are other ways we can solve the same problem that is more appropriate for that place and location and the people who are there. Right. We don't use that way of thinking here in the US because we like to assume that if we develop nice things, then by some magical default, all the people that are poor and haven't been able to take advantage of it before will all of a sudden be able to take advantage of it and we'll have a good life. Well, it doesn't happen that way. So we, we need people thinking about 
what does it mean by appropriate technology within a U.S. system? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Within, yeah, that every, and I tell this to my students, we're not going to turn every neighborhood into over the Rhine the way it is today. That's not the solution. Right. We can do a few and we did it there and it worked nice, but you can't go to, or you shouldn't go to Camp Washington or Silverton or wherever else and say, we're going to turn it into a mini over the Rhine. For a lot of reasons, that's not a good idea. There's not enough demand to support all of that, but it's not helping that local area with their specific issues and their specific people. Right, right, so we true. Need, we need to have and be willing to have more models of what does community development mean. And I think we need to bring the developer community, the community development activist community, um, planners, uh, and maybe there's some other types of players and thinkers that need to get together and discuss discuss these things. Because to, to, to be afraid to do what we're calling sustainability interventions, um, to me is not a good outcome. There are ways to do these things um, because I think they're imperative for the long-term quality of life of the earth. <laughs> yeah. in cities. So, you know, we, we, we've got to get out of the standard way of thinking about what is development, um, what is revitalization and come up with new models. And those new models don't have to be crazily different than what we do, but obviously something has to change. Yeah. Uh, speaking about models, um, in your cross studies between us and other countries um do you think there's any other countries that are like what are other countries doing right and what are they doing wrong in sustainable development and should we adapt any international approaches to addressing community development um good question you know the the area of the world we tend to look towards for innovative and more um, idealistic types of sustainability in cities is Scandinavia. Sweden, for example, and I believe the other countries too, but Sweden for sure, I know. Um, so how do they do it and what are they doing? Well, one of the big differences is people in Scandinavia pay a very high percentage of their salaries for, for taxes. I'm not sure about corporations, but maybe it's the same. There's a lot more tax money for the government to use. And when you have money, when you have resources, you can do things. Now, the difference is when they collect the money, the citizens know, and I'm not saying it's ideal there, but, you know, from what I've heard, um, citizens know they're going to get a lot. They get affordable housing. I mean, affordable housing in Scandinavia and most of Europe is not just for what we call poor people, all kinds of people, middle-income people, teachers, everybody gets affordable housing, subsidized housing from the government. Um, Retirement, subsidized retirement and and healthcare um, and so forth, education and all these things. So they're getting a lot back for the money they put in and they trust the government to do that, obviously. and in addition, then they have this extra money and this more um, public good mentality 
for sustainability. So they are able to do innovations in waste to energy programs, in um, building requirements, green buildings and so forth. Um, and of course, things that a lot of people don't even think about, but we as planners do is, you know, density and public transportation and ways of moving around that is not car oriented, changing energy sources. I mean, you go down the list of all the things we dream of, they're able to do it. <laughs> so can we take that model and do it here? No. <laughs> We're very politically different, culturally different. Um, I mean, it's a great thing to show people, look what could happen if you have more public money, have more, um, let's do things for everybody instead of just for me, you know, that idea. Um, you know, those are the hurdles we have here. So again, we need a very different way to make these investments in the we happen. Yeah, <laughs> definitely what you're alluding to, which is like big policy change, um, seems like. Um, so the city has various projects to sustain parks and turn vacant lots into buildings, gardens, etc. Um, however, the city relationship with communities isn't always peachy. Um, what are your thoughts on community engagement process and what do you recommend the city do to establish a, tr a better trust um, and uh, that, that the serves the community better. Yeah, interesting. Um, I've just, in the very beginning of starting some research in this area with some partners at UC and anthropology and some other departments to look at some of, we're starting with some of the communities in the Mill Creek, along the Mill Creek, to see how environmental planning and sustainability interventions projects are actually, who, who actually decides them, um, who's actually involved and so forth. I don't have any data on that yet. We haven't on the ground done it yet, but we, we want to do it because I, I mean, we know in any place in the world, what happens on the ground is very different than even what the government officials think is going on. And then of course the story we're all told about how things happen and why things happen. Um, so it's gonna take some research to see the realities of what's going on here. Uh, but definitely having done a lot of talking with some of the um, uh, community development groups like WIN um, and, and environmental justice groups like KUFA, um, yeah, there's a, there's a mismatch, there's an antagonism sometimes. And I think from what I've seen and trying to participate in some of these participatory things that we do, um, we're following the book. We're saying, oh, this, you know, you have to have a meeting, you do this, you call everybody, they come, we all sit around and put post-its around, and then they go home, and then who knows what happens to the post-its. And I know, having been on the collect the post-it side, mm -hmm. that that's, a lot of that stuff gets lost. We did the process, we made people feel good, but do we really, really use the information and go through it? Process is difficult. It takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of dedication. I did some research in Seattle back in the 90s when they were considered, you know, the four, four leading sustainability city. Um, and to go and find out why, because they had created this um, sustainability roundtable with everybody who wants to be involved. And this went on for years as they slowly figured out what are the issues, what do they want to do, what is sustainability for them, and so forth. 
Um, and when I talked to them, they said, yeah, the publicity about us sounds good. Yes, we did those things. It's a long, slow process. You need people who are really dedicated to just talking to people, making friends, building trust, weeding through all these things, going down the wrong paths. And people get tired. Nobody really wants to sit around for two years trying to figure out one thing. Yeah. And so you lose interest. Um, I don't know the right answer, but we definitely don't do it right for sure. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of trust building that it's hard. I lost and... Oh, oh, there, you're just fine. oh okay. okay. Yeah, sorry, I'm back. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of um, trust building and it, a lot of... It, it does. And, you know, maybe cities need a, a sub-organization, whether they're attached to planning or attached to, if they have a community development office or something, um, that that's what they do. Yeah. I mean, I know city of Cincinnati our planning department is very small. There's very few people. There's not enough time to send several of them out to do all of this. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, sounds like, I mean, I'm going to assume they have a communications team that would maybe be able to assist with some of that, but I don't know. Who knows? It's, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> and it takes a long time. And so you have to have dedication both on the community side and probably the interview interventionist groups the, the community development groups and activists and then the city yeah uh, and plus you need a lot of volunteers and yeah. community engagement i know here at saint nepal <laughs> um random sidetrack i'll take this out later but um they're struggling with volunteers right now um because for the past year there's been no communication between like the staff and then what's going on here while we've still been technically open but with no volunteers coming in really and now they haven't like that connection is just kind of like gone now they're just finally starting to reach out back to people to say that we're reopening but like they're not getting responses like that no one's thought about saving Nepal for the past year um so crying reminds me of this situation with like sustainability movements is like that communication has to be constant and engaging for people to stay active in it exactly yeah um but yeah sidetrack <laughs> um so uh, i have one more question for you uh i believe um how does you touched on this a little bit um but how does sustainable development projects affect the affordability of housing Well, it depends what kind of project. <laughs> um, you know, projects that provide amenities, like new green space, um, even trees probably, um, uh, things that people think are cool or whatever. Um, we know that adjoining properties values go up. Um, and that's one of the, you know, that interferes with affordability um right and but you know so that's that's a problem but there there so i don't remember who it was i remember reading an article that was discussing this type of thing and they came up with the saying how do we make things just green enough mm. you know make it greener make it 
better for the overall environment and for people's health and so forth, but not so much that it becomes this amenity that is sought out by people who actually have a lot of money. Um, sounds good. I don't know what that really is, but it's another thing we need to think about. Um, and it's not saying, oh, we're not, we're going to do great things in the neighborhoods we want to be more expensive and crappy things in the neighborhoods we don't. But it's, it's, it's got to be some different approach to what on the ground happens. Um, possibly, I mean, what I think, I mean, if it was me and I was trying to work with a neighborhood on this that was wanted to retain affordability is, you know, a lot, and again, who has the time, but a lot of at least local community input and, and engagement as much as they could, maybe get resources to help pay local people to work on these things um, instead of bringing in outside consultants um, and paying them a pile of money. Um, I mean, at some point you'll need, yes, people who live somewhere are the experts of their place, but they may not be experts on, on the realities of climate change or um, ecological whatever. Um, so you will have to bring some experts in sometime, but the experts shouldn't lead the process. They should, they could be there to provide feedback on, is this going to create a positive environmental outcome or not? Why or why not? And what kind of things you need to think about. Um, but again, the key is who has time, but also having resources to actually pay people for their time, expecting people to do this all voluntarily. No, it's insane. And, and they're not going to be as, as engaged or, um, uh, I mean, I think they will care about it even more if they know, oh, they're taking me seriously. My time is valuable. And we're, you know, we're gonna figure out how, what we wanna do here and then bring experts in to make sure it makes sense. Yeah, so it's all about like paying boots on the ground and having community stakeholders be valued more yes. than they are currently. Yes, local knowledge, no matter if you're working in a neighborhood here or uh, an indigenous area or a rural area in Asia, the people who are there know much more than we do who parachute in and say, oh, we're experts, we know how to deal with this. <laughs>